Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the Scanner studio today are Roberta Sokolitz, who is independent curator of the Waterfront Gallery in Charleston, Dr. Richard Hagerty, who goes by Duke, who is a plastic surgeon in Charleston. But we're here to talk not about plastic surgery, but about art. And he is an artist of some renown, a surrealist, and we'll get into that. But first of all, both of you, welcome to the journal. Thank you. Thank you. Duke, I guess we need to find out how did somebody who goes off to medical school, who grew up, you know, a good Irish Catholic boy, end up doing surrealism? When I was in medical school at Duke, I was introduced to Jungian psychology and dream analysis. And I'd always been interested in art, particularly the surrealists from Europe, particularly Rousseau and Dali and people like that. And uh, I was just, I was interested in the dream part of it. And I was painting at the time, but having this course, this, uh, my professor suggested that I paint my dreams rather than write them down and, and see what happened. And that was a falling off the horse experience. It was an epiphany, and I've been painting seriously ever since. And basically, uh, surrealism for in its simple terms is is just beyond real and it enters it brings you into that dream world and in the in the way Jung would approach it is 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 the conscious versus the unconscious and the unconscious is that whole realm that's so important out there it's sort of like quantum the analogy would be between newtonian physics and and quantum who knows what quantum really is? Nobody really can understand that. And the same thing with the unconscious. And this is a language that I paint in, and that's how it's all started. And I've been doing it ever since. Alfred and I were looking through your book, and, and Alfred, being a good good child of the 70s, said, mm, those are some interesting dreams. <laughs> 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 and, of course, when people think of surrealism, they think of, of Dolly. You, you don't paint melting watches. But you mentioned going back to much earlier artists, Roberta Bosch. Yes. And I immediately thought of Bruegel. Exactly. Um, what we call proto-surrealists, actually, because they anticipated surrealism, which was a first a European movement in the 20s and 30s and then was imported mm -hmm. to America. Dolly came here. Other artists whose work does resemble Duke Hegarty's early work. Well, let's describe it. His earliest work is very delicate, uh, ethereal watercolors. They're, they're really quite exquisite. I can't wait till people see them. So, Duke, you started by getting up and working in a sketchbook in your studio and home office. Right, and then right. you and, would elaborate upon right. that. Well, basically, as a resident and coming through, you know, you don't have any money or time, and so I picked up watercolors because they're unforgiving. You can't go back and change them, and so you're committed. And that, to me, was very attractive because I wouldn't waste time coming back to it. And the pen and ink, and then the watercolor on top of it, that. But uh, that was my medium, and it was a, a good match for me because you could do uh, a work for 30 minutes here, 30 minutes there, 
and get what you needed done and get the idea done. And that's how that's, that started. And the dreams were plenty. And these dreams, you know, they, they, some of my dreams look so vile and so on. But remember, I'm a, I'm a surgeon. Mm-hmm. And I come from that experience. And painting, you have to have a narrative to be a good painter. Again, the painting itself is a language, but in the end, you really have to have something to say. And that, uh, I've had a very rich life that I'm, it's all luck and, and fortune. And that's what I, I draw from, and those experiences, and then uh, and all my interests outside of that as well. Did you have any formal artistic training? No. You say you just started and you haven't had any training, but what you've done requires a great deal of skill. Roberta? It does. Watercolor is the most unforgiving medium which he took, so he has an innate creativity. His whole interest in the unconscious and getting up and beginning to draw, sketch his dreams. We see things that I think we consider to be characteristically Freudian, like a runaway train, dream images that we've all had um, in the earliest works. And then he begins to refine. There's a greater confidence in his handling, again, of a very difficult medium. Beautiful pearlescent colors or reds and pinks and rich greens and blues. We all love color, so I think that's something you can relate to easily. Well, for folks out there, we're we're talking about surrealism and going back to the 16th century with Bosch and and, and Bruegel. But South Carolinians may be more familiar with your Piccolo Spoleto posters uh, to get an idea of of what you you do. I think if if we were to talk about the the 1984 one, well, actually several of them. You can't forget the church steeples of Charleston. <laughs> the Holy City. The Holy City. Well, basically, the uh, those when we first came back to Charleston, when, when my, my wife and I finished our residency in Atlanta and we moved back to Charleston, you know, that's so much part of who I am, my city. And I did these posters uh, in celebration of that, and then they were picked up by Piccolo. Uh, I certainly appreciated that. And the first one was basically trying to capture the magic of the those earlier festivals that they had, and so it brings in the dance and the costumes and the movement that Piccolo had. And, and the hot air balloons. And And that. Yeah. Well, that's the, the nice thing about painting. I say, I can do anything I want. And that's, uh, whereas a, a realist, he's sort of trapped. These were have been incredibly popular. And I think a lot of people w- will see them and say, oh, yeah, I know who this artist is. And yet 1984 was a long time ago. So we have four decades of art beginning in 1976 to today. And... Duke is very active still. He really likes art. He likes to study. He's not self-taught in the naive sense. He's an omnivorous reader and student. He, he's not a Grandma Moses that's yes. come out of the... And travels, and the travels are incorporated into his imagery. 
Well, in, in terms of reading, it's it's very clear early on, and, and you talk about you have an interview uh, at at the very beginning. Mythology plays a big part of your. So, do you dream about um, the bulls of Crete, the Minotaur, and that's that kind of thing? Well, unlike uh, just everybody else, when when I was young, I didn't think I dreamed at all, and then when I started paying attention and became more aware of the unconscious then things became revealed. And then I got, uh, I realized very quickly, uh, just a quick story, I, we were in in Chicago, my wife's the poet, Barbara, and we were, I was there escorting her on a, a poetry mission or something. But anyway, I was, at, uh, I hid myself in the uh, Chicago Museum of Art. In the basement, there was this vase, Chinese vase, it was 2,000 years old, and it had this design on it, very intricate design. The next day, I went to the Chicago Museum of Natural History and saw a Pablo jar that was 500 A.D. with the exact same complicated design. And there you, it was, the collective unconscious, and this myth it's in our DNA, and it goes back thousands and thousands of years. And that is the theme that I pull from constantly. You mentioned that experience, and everywhere you've lived has made a difference. Well, I've had a chance to uh, travel the world. I do uh, cleft lip and palate, and I've and I went to Vietnam uh, a bunch of times and was had a, a great interpreter who introduced me uh, to Buddhism and that art, and so that's all through the through this, and been through Cambodia, Peru, and so on. So th this is all uh, inculcated into my uh, experience, and I draw from that experience as well. When I go to these countries, I study them. Uh, so I go in prepared, uh, not only just from the history, but from the art as well and just really pour myself into it. And uh, and then hopefully it's in the art itself. I'm looking now, there's a Middle Eastern component here. Yes. There are religions. Yes. As there are world religions. He's global, international in his interests. You've moved now from watercolor to oils. Is that correct? Correct. I still do watercolors. I still do them all. I paint bones. I paint uh, guitars. I paint anything that I can get my hands on. Well, and so this, well, tell us why you paint bones. We were in Africa on a trip, and I'd forgotten my watercolor paper. And I did have some watercolors, and there are all these bones around. And so I started playing with the bones, and then I've been painting bones ever since. There's something you're, you're – we're all alive. We're you – know, we're, we're, uh, I share this world with uh, life, and life comes in all kind of ways, and I'm just another life form, and I'm lucky to be here. Life forms are part of many of your works, and I'm looking here at the, at the trilogy, the Alpha Omega. And moving in time. Moving in time. Let's, let's talk about that, Roberta. Describe, again, for our listeners who don't have it before us, we need to, we need to describe those. There are three major canvases um, alpha is black and white. Omega is full color, and they have what we call biometric forms, sort of biological 
You would see these things that are similar in the art of Miro and um, Calder. Actually, Duke had an early experience with the Charlestonian Laura Bragg, who introduced him to Calder. She introduced him, she showed him some jewelry, and you see these forms reproduced, but they're human, and he plays with positive and negative spaces, and in the large, colorful canvas that will be on view, Omega, he has all different kinds of forms in play across the canvas. Well, in, you know, in, in looking at the forms, I was going to say body parts. There are body parts. The, He's a, He was a surgeon. There yeah. are blades and excisions. Yes. The black and white and then the the moving in time, the second one, they're color, but it's it's tricolor. But it then you tricolor. get then you get to the Omega, which is an incredible full color for us non-surrealists, more recognizable shapes. But on this one, I think we just have to describe for, for for our listeners. You've got a female form atop a tiger. You have a female form whose womb is cut, at least that's been the interpretation, with the rising sun behind it. Interpret that for me, please. I'll give it a first hit. The, uh, actually, the, the sun is coming out of her belly. Oh, okay. And, and again, it's, my kids always uh, kid me. I, I, I have two themes, sex and death. And so there you go. It's all right there. Okay. It is. And I would say the surrealists like to make juxtapositions and not necessarily give you the answers, but evoke mysteries. And, of course, the woman is an Eve type. She's she's in a bit of a garden. There are some other characteristic Hagerty symbols like the tree-like form that she leans against with the green biometric, organic-looking. Is that the tree of knowledge? Or life. Walter, that's all you get. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that's <laughs> and there is, and there is a blue moon. So. <laughs> that's right. But I, I was thinking of the lion lying down with the lamb, and the child and the serpent. I mean, maybe I'm just reading too much biblical into that. No, actually, you're doing it just right. That that's what painting is all about. Is it, it's what the viewer experiences of the painting. Mm-hmm. So I love that you would look at it and interpret it and and obviously there are hooks in there to pull you in and and so you're doing exactly what I would want a viewer to do is to bring their own personal experience to a painting and have their unique experience with that painting now I'm just the messenger I I just come in paint the figures and then elicit the feelings and emotions from the viewer and uh, so th- that's what makes this such a fascinating process. These are very large paintings. They're six feet across, four well, feet high. So they will have an impact. Is this trilogy hung together somewhere, or has it been, has it been broken up? Well, the, the Gibbs has the middle one, and we have the, the two ends. And obviously I'd like to, at some point, make sure that they all stay together. 
But, you know, once you've done it as a painter, once I've done it, it's done. And uh, you sort of cast it out there, and I'm on to the next. You're still sort of practicing medicine, right? You're no longer teaching full-time at the medical university. No, actually, I'm like Cortez going into Mexico. I burned the boats going in, and that's it. And uh, I told myself five years ago that I was going to do this because uh, this is painting is obviously a, a very important part of my life. It's sort of like breathing. This is my time to really pour into it. I had a chance, an opportunity uh, when in my early 30s to do this full time. Uh, I had a backer out of California, but he said, you know, I'll back you on one condition, that you quit medicine altogether because no one's going to take you seriously as a part-time painter. And that's been pretty much true, but I love plastic surgery. I love my time. It was a true honor and a pleasure. But there's a time for everything, and now this is my time to paint full-time, and so that's um, that's what we're doing. And this, we've been planning this show and book now, uh, my wife and I, for about five years. Well, is the back is the backer still out there, or is he gone bye bye? Oh, he's gone. <laughs> Laura Bragg. I want to get back to Laura Bragg, who was quite an exceptional person, and sometimes underappreciated in terms of the Charleston Renaissance uh, and the art Absolutely. world in general. And she also was something of a controversial figure, right? So, how did you, your your mama send you? My to- mom, my mother was a huge fan of her through the Gibbs. I think she knew her through the Gibbs. And she was my first mentor after my parents. I want to just talk a second about mentoring. That's the most important thing that can happen to you is a mentor. It's more important where you went to college. It's more important uh, what you do. That mentor is crucial. And I was so fortunate to have her at that point in my life. I'd been struggling with dyslexia. I was had a lot of issues that uh, and made it complicated for a lot of people. She looked at me and uh, gave me confidence in my own decision-making. She would take me up. I was 12 years old at the time. I was going through confirmation at the cathedral, and it was a, a lot of stories there, but it, it was a disaster. But anyway, she in, uh, would take me to her second-floor little library, and she would show me art books. And she introduced me to Hieronymus Bosch. She was, you know, I'm 12 years old. She looked like she was going to die. I mean, she was, you know, anybody over 50, I was, they looked really old. <laughs> and, uh, and, but she was so, had a twinkle in her eye, non judgmental. She was friends with Gertrude Stein, Calder, and all these people, and had been around the block. She was the first female curator of a major of a of a museum in the United States. She broke that glass barrier. But to me, she was this little old lady who had had a lot of courage and introduced me to surrealism. And so I'll always be uh, grateful for that. And I may have only been with her twice, but that had such a profound influence on me I never forgot it. She showed you Hieronymus Bosch and you were going through confirmation classes. I'm just trying to get my hands around. <laughs> I mean, you talk about something dark, and you're getting a good traditional Catholic confirmation class. Now, you're grinning. i got to tell you this story. 
All right, so it's just hell. I'm dyslexic. There are 40 kids in the class. Uh, you have to get a 70 on the test. 39 people pass. My score is a 20. And I had Father Duffy. Father Duffy had a crucifix for a raffle. And guess who won? <laughs> he comes over to my desk and says, it's a sign from God. You're going to get confirmed. <laughs> this is Father Joe Duffy, right? Y- yes. Yes. And, 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 uh, and, you know, 40 years later, did it only occur to me that the thing had been rigged. And, you know, what a good priest. My friend Gary Smith said, you know, that, that's a good priest. Well, and so this is a kind of environment. And then I go back with Ms. Bragg. And here she is, looked like she's about to keel over. And she asked me as a 12-year-old, do you believe in God? And what do you do? I, I, I say, yeah. And she laughed at me. She laughed at me to make me think about it. And then it was a personal decision after that rather than having it uh, you know, stomped on me. And so I've always uh, been very grateful to her that somebody, uh, that she had the, the sense to uh, ask me that at that point. Mm-hmm. And it could have been taken the, obviously the wrong way, but I got it. Well, I'm just, I'm just thinking about if you had shown a Bosch illustration to anybody but Joe Duffy, <laughs> <laughs> you might not have won the crew of <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Absolutely. Well, you're, you're talking about two people. I did not know Laura Bragg personally. I did know Joe Duffy personally. His brother John here is a great friend of mine. People who are almost iconoclasts. I mean, they, 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 think, they think outside the box within their particular spheres. Uh, I mean, Joe Duffy was adamantly and openly for civil rights a long time before it became popular and even within the church before it became popular. He was very outspoken. Uh, quite a guy. Well, he had my back. And I've been blessed that I've been uh, had mentors who've been out of the box all along. A society in the end can only measure itself by how tolerant it is because it's those edges where people are that are, are where real things change, where the, uh, the Newtons and the um, Michelangelos and the Da Vinci, these people who are who would be declared marginal in so many societies, those are the ones who really push the world forward. And so thank goodness for the Duffies and the Laura Braggs in the world. Well, in in, in many cases, Laura Bragg is being vindicated. In fact, the whole Charleston Renaissance is being vindicated in not just the art world, but the literary world. Uh, as well. And I I can't help smiling as a South Carolinian because the art world has just discovered that Georgia O'Keeffe had her artistic epiphany in the few months she was in South Carolina, whereas before it had always been poo-pooed. And her connection to South Carolina came through Charleston. Yes, Anita Pulitzer. Yes. An An interesting world, the Laura Bragg world, although that was before your time, that influence continued through you. It does continue. If you think about Charleston, I have studied Charleston art history, 
since I met you, Duke, at the Gibbs. I was a staff person at the Gibbs in the first exhibition in the 80s. It's really wonderful what goes on here, and you realize it. Later on, I revere Laura Braggett's. I read the books about her, and I say she was a museum pioneer before anyone. one of the few... I don't want to say failures, but non-successes she had when she tried to have a show by an African-American artist. Right. And the gallery board said no. But she supported him and helped him, but she couldn't get, she couldn't get the show. Yes. When you look at watercolorists in Charleston, you think of Alice Ravenel Hikuchi-Smith, and if you look at Duke Hagerty, he started in watercolor. He One of the amazing things he can do is the washes on his watercolors often go from blue to pink to pale yellow and other kind of shadings in between. It's remarkable. So it's not so... F- Laura Bragg is a link between the earlier mm-hmm. period, we're seeing more about artists that were active at mid-century. Well, you mentioned the 1980s. Was that your first major show? I was really lucky. I, uh, my first show was right away at, in uh, Craskin Gallery in uh, Buckhead, and only at the time in Atlanta, believe it or not, there were only about two or three galleries. And Steve Kraskin gave me a show, and I was painting throughout my residency. And I was uh, fortunate to have, again, uh, my professors at, at Emory, uh, Dr. Yurkiewicz and Dr. Dean Warren and Dr. Boswick, all got it and had my back and encouraged me to paint, which was very unusual in a, such a rigorous uh, surgical training situation. Okay, now they say they had your back. Does that mean they understood that painting was such a part of your life, you really needed to do that? And, I mean, because residency hours were pretty tight. I mean, Well, they didn't give me any slack on the, on the work or anything like that, but it was a, an attitude that they respected what I did and encouraged me to continue it. And rather than moonlight, to make money, I would uh, have these shows. It just meant a lot to have those people at that level to, uh, number one, know what I was doing mm-hmm. and to encourage it. You know, Two of them were past presidents of the American College of Surgeons. I mean, these are the biggest heavy hitters in, in surgery. And I was just lucky to have them uh, understand what I was trying to do. We talked about earlier that uh, surgery, body parts, incisions, but the Red Bull. (laughs) Let's talk about him because he's flayed, isn't he? Yes. Skinned. Yep. Again, uh, Walter, I'm going to, as I'm going to take the artist's prerogative, that came out 100% from a dream. And I, long time ago, uh, gave up trying to interpret dreams. I'm not really interested in dream analysis. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in getting the unconscious into the conscious level and then letting the mind work and come up with its own interpretation. But uh, so many of these images, and the bull is is certainly a recurrent one, 
but that bull is my that's my favorite uh, painting. It's my self portrait. So uh, there you go. Bulls are universal symbols of. Yeah, that have been used by artists for so many years. I mean, think of Picasso and it's virility. You can associate it's associated with Bacchus. With, with yeah, and you can also uh, associate with just chaos, with uh, powerful chaos. And I've, I felt like that a lot of times growing up. And so it's over the years. I'm trying to. I've been it's been an effort to try to tame the mind and become more aware and try to get off the bull a little bit. But that bull uh, was, the power of it gave me a lot of energy to get a lot of things done early in my life. Folks, we need to pause for a moment to let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking to artist Richard Hagerty and curator Roberta Sokolitz about Richard, or Duke Hagerty's surrealism. It's a fascinating conversation as uh, he's letting me interpret what he's <laughs> what he's what he's painting, and I'm not sure I can do some of that on the air. Um, You're right. You mentioned earlier, Duke Roberta. You said this too: is that your painting has been influenced by your life experiences, starting in medical school, and well, obviously earlier, but then where you've gone. So let's let's trace your action. You know, your first show in Atlanta, and then coming back to Charleston when you first began doing some watercolors with the steeples of the before the Spoleto. So let's talk a little bit more about you. Well, it's a, it's a constant, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I married the most, uh, my muse, and, uh, and I've had so much support. And that's enabled me to really push myself in all these other endeavors. Where I came from was uh, tough in, in some ways. And it always gave me empathy. So when I go through my life experiences, there's a lot of empathy for the suffering. That, and we all go, you can't get through this life without that. But I've been so fortunate. Uh, I have this special friend, uh, Gary, who he and I have, uh, have gone through. Uh, we were introduced ourselves to philosophy and and uh, we went through this meditation. That's a whole funny story. Yeah. All right. so, Gary, Gary Smith. Gary Smith, the uh, the writer. Anyway, uh, so we're going through. We we met. We would meet regularly to to study philosophy, and we were going through the Greeks and all the. Yeah, tell us how, how they got together, though. There's there's a medical reason you got together, right? Yes. Well, he was a patient. He's the only patient I've ever recognized as that kind of a friend. And we just uh, hit it off, and it's just one of those those gifts in life to recognize a close friend. And so I got the best deal. I got a, a, a great wife, and I got a great friend. And we share a lot, and we uh, have a lot of common experiences and a lot of fun. So we decided to learn philosophy. And just like painting, we're not going to uh, get lessons. We're not going to get lessons in philosophy. We're going to do this ourselves, no matter what mess we make of it. So we get to Buddhism. And he says, why don't we go learn how to meditate? And I say, fine. And, you know, I've never meditated a day in my life. <laughs> but it's a dare. And we take this Vipassana retreat 
you know, most people go to the mountains in the Himalayas and have this exotic experience. We go to Jessup, Georgia, which is a train track thing down there, you know, uh, and it's in this uh, brick, uh, looks like an old abandoned motel. And I have to sit for one hour straight. It's a 10-day retreat, no talking, no caffeine, no uh, reading, no exercise, nothing. So here you got this type A maniac surgeon, and you sit him down. It, I felt like I was going back to my childhood. I spent a lot of time in time out. I felt <laughs> like this was uh, very analogous. And that, it took me eight days to sit still for an hour. But that was a big experience for me. But it's more like going, uh, I bring it now as a, it's, a, a, it's a discipline. It's not a religion. It's a discipline. It's teaching myself to be aware, empathetic, and how to go through life. And then what really started this was my toy, too, my interpreter from Vietnam. And there's another story there that I'd like to say is that toy, too, took me to a temple in Vietnam. This is back long before there was opening it up. We're in Vietnam. This is in Mito, in uh, south of, of Saigon. And I was doing cleft lip and palate there. But anyway, there's this temple, and it's got this trench around it, a circle. In the circle or ditch is a tortoise going round and round. And, and I said, what's the deal with that? And the, and the guy tells to, to my interpreter and looks at me and, and says, that's you. And that was my view, my limited view of the world, that tortoise. I'm just a tortoise in this ditch going round and round. Mm -hmm. And so this whole awareness thing has come. Now, you know, I'm not much out of the ditch. I don't pretend to be. But at least I'm aware there's something out there. And so, and, the, and I incorporate all these experiences into the paintings. But, of course, the tortoise and the heron are very important symbols in Buddhism. Yes, but there was actually a trench where this tortoise was just... It, it, that was its own little world. Isn't that a great metaphor? Oh, that's, that's, that's wonderful. Amazing. So how did you get to Vietnam? This is before it was opened up. I know you're doing surgery, but did you do this as a church mission? Did you just Doctors Without Borders? Uh, this, this was a, a group called uh, InterSurge, and it's out of California, and it's non-denominational, and it's all about teaching. I, I will not uh, associate myself with any of these uh, trips that doesn't have teaching as a first priority, and that's a whole nother uh, discussion. But if you don't have teaching as it, then I really have a lot of criticism for those kinds of trips. But that's my own personal view, and, and we could that's a debate. But... So I go teach it and teach people how to do cleft lip and palate and then going back and back and f get myself out of a job. And so this is a, it's all volunteer, and it's the best group of people around the world. We've had you know, people from Europe, and uh, one of the best trips I ever had was a plastic surgeon from Nepal. And he was on one of these Vietnam trips with and He's done more cleft lip and palate than anybody else in the world. And here we are, roommates for two weeks. Boy, did I learn a lot from him. But th that's the kind of experience. And then plus, you've got this interpreter who's explaining the culture and taking you out. I mean, it's a magnificent experience. 
this is what makes my life, uh, I'm so fortunate. I, I just got back from Cambodia a couple months ago. And that was a whole nother experience because Cambodia and the history there. Uh, but I was able to take a boat trip. I hired this motorboat. And I was in a little town south of Phnom Penh. And I was able to go to down the uh, Mekong to the Vietnam border. Uh, and just like an apocalypse now, and I jumped in the water. and But anyway, all these rich, deep, deep cultures that go back and back. And how there's so much commonality. That is what I'm so interested in, to learn about myself and learn about my place in this world. And we all share it. And it's just a matter of becoming more aware of it. I was thinking, since you were in, in Cambodia, thinking of Angkor Wat, the carvings there could be Bosch or Bruegel in stone. That's right. No question and, about it. And you will see poses that relate to indigenous art that he's experienced. Art, that's two places, but obviously you have anything in the Middle East. No. Well, that, but I was looking at what looked like uh, the Tower of Babel or... No, that, that probably came more from my Catholic uh, upbringing. But uh, I've not done any surgery in the Middle East, but okay. uh, it was mostly in South America and, and the, the Far East. All right. And where in South America? Honduras, and but particularly Peru. And uh, I was in Prayura, which is a northern city. It's right on the Ecuador border. Pariura was uh, the capital of Pizarro's first capital, and it was an ancient mocha, a 10,000-year-old uh, capital as well. And all of these uh, great traditions uh, were there, and there are a lot of, I think there's some paintings from there as well, from uh, there. But anyway, uh, I just take from all these different experiences and cultures and make them my own. When you're talking about Central America, South America. I'm looking here at paintings. One is called Deliverance, and the other is Let Your Heart Rest, which they look like Mayan or Incan ruins. Right. Again, where you've been, what you've done. Is this a result of dreams? or Because you talk about painting from dreams, but do you do sometimes just paint without? Absolutely. Okay. The process, The uh, I dream a lot. I, I can have four or five dreams a night. And I used to have a dream uh, diary, but I gave that up. It was just got so convoluted. But I will take sketches in the morning, and I don't get up in the middle of the night particularly to do that. But I do get up a lot. I, I, I sit a lot at uh, 3 o'clock. Most nights I get up at 3 and, and sit. And then the best dreams come at 4 when I go back after sitting. And they are incredibly vivid, and those are the ones I really uh, use. All I need is a frame. It's like a movie. All I need is one frame out of that dream to paint. And then I'll get that image down. And then the rest of the movie or the narrative, of the unconscious narrative, will appear or will present itself later. And I'm not there analyzing it at the time, and it may take months for that uh, image to manifest what it really meant to me. And this is an experience that happens to me 
a lot. And I, I do that because uh, this is it's the most exciting thing is to have a dream and then be able to draw it and then uh, follow it out. But yes, I do take uh, imagery off walls, off uh, uh, temples, whatever. But then you start dreaming them and then they will come in. So that it's all it's all part of the same thing. It's just whether it's a conscious or an unconscious experience. You wake up, you don't sit at your clock, you wake up and then you do an hour of meditation basically? I call it sitting. I don't want to pretend that it's meditation, but it's it's an attempt at meditation, but it's sitting. I just do find you it... sit and do deep breathing and Yes. But but then I find Sounds it amazing good. at you know, snap your fingers at four o'clock, you're going back to sleep and dreaming. If I get up like that and then I start thinking about things particularly when I'm writing, my mind starts racing. I can't go back to sleep. When I wake up at 3 o'clock, my mind is racing just like yours. And I can't get back to sleep if I didn't sit. So sitting is basically calming myself down and making myself aware of where I really am and getting all that static out. And then I can go back and have a restful sleep. And that's when the unconscious manifests itself like like a river. And so that's uh, that's how the process works for me. I'm holding this beautiful book, American Surrealist, The Art of Richard Hagerty. How did this come about? We had a friend. Uh, I'm with Lise Corrigan at uh, Gallery in Charleston, and she was representing Manning Williams. And Manning uh, passed away. He's a great artist, a great character, and his wife, Barbara. I thought about him, and I said, well, you know, I'm not that far from Manning. So I said, if I went now, there's, it's going to be very difficult for my family or anybody to put this together. And then also, Angela Mack suggested that we really needed, at this point in my career, a, a monolith. Monograph. Monograph. It's <laughs> a monolith. <laughs> it's a monolithic a mono- job. This, that's what I'm, my wife is always. Oh you know, God, I, I'm constantly bastardizing the English language, and that's my. Wife. Well, say monograph. You're speaking my language. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Right. But anyway, monograph. Uh, so it was clear a number of years ago that we needed to get a monograph together mm. to get this all organized, and it was the best thing. And then my wife is the champion of this, and this is really her book more than anything. But uh, Roberta, when, as you know, when you publish a book, people come out and start talking to you. I hope that people who have purchased your work, Duke, will come out, and I will get to see lots of new mm-hmm. things that they well, own. Well, is this exhibit going to move, or is it just going to be? We're working on that now. Um, there. I, I think the list of works is about 120 now, and which fills up a large-scale gallery. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about Duke, and we've all noticed it as we've worked, is that we could do we could do a whole geometric exhibition, for example. We could do a whole exhibition about medicine, practice of medicine. Um, so there's so many tracks we can take that we're we were brainstorming on the way up how to talk to curators and directors and get more out of this. When I got the book, I was just absolutely 
fascinated. I'll go back to the Omega painting and the tree of knowledge because that's not only biblical, that's also there's a tree of knowledge in Buddhism as well. I don't know when you painted that after your Buddhist experience, but there is a tree of knowledge in Buddhism. There's a tree of life in Mayan culture. There's a tree of life in uh, Islamic culture. Islamic, uh, every, every major culture has a tree of life. It's not necessarily an apple tree. <laughs> that comes from medieval art. And Roberta, what are the dates of the exhibition? The exhibition dates are Friday, November 20th, 2015, through January 10th, 2016. It's at the City of Charleston's Gallery at Waterfront Park, which is free and open to the public. Okay. And you say right now you don't know whether it'll travel somewhere else. You're negotiating that. Yes. Okay. Duke, how many paintings and watercolors do you have at your house stored away? A whole lot. A whole lot. Yeah, boxes and boxes. You know, fortunately, when I came through, and that, this is such a great luxury, I had a day job that I didn't have to depend on uh, painting for feeding my or raising my family. And boy, are they lucky. Uh, so I, there wasn't any great need to try to sell them, and so they just sort of stuck around. No, though, though we have sold a fair amount, but uh, again, the painting in the painting process is once I've done a painting, it's done, and I'm I'm really not that interested in the one sitting on the floor. So they do accumulate uh, rather rapidly, and I am uh, rather prolific. How long does it take you to do? I mean, obviously, watercolor and oils are different, but how long does it take you to to do a painting? Well, uh, Walter, sometimes it'll take three months to do a really intricate one, and I've certainly spent three to four months on a paint one painting. But on the other hand, I can do uh, one uh, watercolor, a simple one, in a day or a couple of hours. So I go back and forth. Okay. Well, I hate to put you on the spot, but I'm going to. What is your favorite painting, looking back over your career, 40 years I have to say, you know, my wife has favorites, but I really, um, I, again, I, I just don't uh, have that kind of a uh, feeling for them. I'm, I'm really on to the next one. Oh, I, I find that because you know sometimes artists will say, "Well, I do it, and then a year later I'll go back and I'll change this." Could that happen? N- well, uh, sometimes <laughs> if Roberta says this is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, or Barbara, and uh, and I and I do listen. I do uh, take criticism well, but uh, but again, uh, the, we have a couple of of, of ones that were uh, fine. You know, have, but family mm-hmm. uh, ones, portraits of my children. Okay, those are those are that have that kind of meaning. Yeah, I I would say that those are right. special. And Roberta. Have you got a favorite? Duke has one of his more recent paintings called Bliss, which is a watercolor on paper. And those, and there's one called Yin Yang, again. And describe those just briefly. They are what I call his newly bright, bold, fully integrated paintings. So like maybe a Tibetan painting, there's floating things everywhere, but it's beautifully composed and holds together well. The color's beautiful. 
You'll see Buddhist gods. You'll see a guy driving a tractor uh, in nature. So it's just a wonderful world to stand in front of and experience and beautiful color and line. And I do think in the past five years that Duke has synthesized a lot of work and is attaining a different level of, you know, aesthetic level that's beautiful. Okay. Well, I hate this. Alfred is giving us the wind-up sign. So any last words for our listeners? And, Roberta, I'm going to let you go first and let, let Duke have the last word. I think it might clarify for everybody if they understood how focused and disciplined Duke is. He's very energetic, and he knows how to make the most of all of his time. He doesn't waste time. So when you look at his life, as I did to go in and look at art and talk to him about his art, I said, when do you do all this? So maybe it does start as a medical student when you're 25 and you're awake all night, and so you start sketching. Okay. Duke? You know, first of all, it's just an honor, and thank you for doing this. And But I, I, I think, uh, too, uh, just the humor that I've had in my life. And uh, my friend Gary and I started playing the guitars, and th- what a humbling experience. And I've been playing, trying to play the guitar now for over two years, and my friends say it sounds like I've been playing a week. And uh, <laughs> so... That sort of sums up a lot of my experience. I, I put a lot of effort into it, but have a good time with it. And uh, and I know how fortunate I am, and I'm very lucky. Roberta Sokolitz, who is guest curator of the exhibition at the city's Waterfront Gallery, and Dr. Richard Hagerty, Duke Hagerty, thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you. Thank you, Walter. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know I did. This was a fascinating conversation. What a fascinating life this man has had. And his work is, I can only say it, surreal. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Next time on Walter Edgar's Journal, my guests will be Professors Pat Sullivan and Bobby Donaldson of the USC History Department, and we'll be talking about the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and the background of that act in South Carolina. I think as we commemorate the 5th anniversary, we should be mindful to look really closely at the long grassroots struggle for voting rights and opportunity. Join me for Walter Edgar's Journal, a production of ETV Radio, South Carolina Public Radio, Friday at noon. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. 
Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.